0: Welcome to the Dear NICU Mama podcast. I'm Ashley and I'm Martha. And our mission is to connect the past and the present NICU mom by celebrating our stories and what our babies have overcome. Whether your NICU journey was 50 years ago or whether you
1: find yourself in the NICU today, we hope that this podcast reminds you that you are not alone. Hi mamas and welcome back to the Dear NICU Mama podcast. It's your hosts Martha and Ashley. Ashley, it's been so long since we've talked, just getting minutes <laughs> ago. Um, on today's episode, we have the pleasure of revisiting Tiffany Hovelson's story. Um, if you heard part one, we talked about um, Tiffany's pregnancy, her journey to getting pregnant a bit, as well as a bit about Finley's journey. But there's two parts to this story because there's two little sweet girls involved, Um and we wanted to check back in with Tiffany and and talk a little bit more about Isla's journey because it was really different and really unique. But so thanks for for coming back, Tiffany, um, from our five minute break. <laughs> I don't know about you, Ashley, but I I really think that there's a lot of really good nuggets that we heard in mm-hmm. Finley's episodes that I've never heard said before here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And stuff that's really hitting me too. That I'm like, oh my gosh, I for- I forgot about that, and it's just like so true. Yeah. Um, so thanks for being so vulnerable and real.
2: Yes, I I'm really good at sharing my feelings, and uh, <laughs> sometimes too much, but. Uh, no this is something that I am super passionate about and and I don't take it lightly all of these these little sayings that you guys have and you are not alone you are braver than you feel be proud of who you become who you've become and every single one of those has hit me so hard and I want other moms to know that those feelings are not shameful and mm-hmm. that that it's okay to share the 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 thoughts and emotions that aren't all bright and shiny.
0: Yeah. Amen. Yeah, yeah. oh my gosh, I can't believe how part I, 2 I, is already I, off to a dashing start. Yes. <laughs> but Therapy the, with re- Tiffany. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the release of the be proud of who you've become. Like I feel like that is really an anthem for you now.
2: It is. It feels like it. I Girl. I am a different human being than I was even just a year ago and yes. Yes. I am continually changing and learning things about myself and my kids and and who I'm becoming and mm-hmm. I I am learning to love every part of that journey.
0: Beautiful. I love that. Man, I'm already so pumped for part 2. This is so fun. <laughs> So we kind of left off part one where Finley had recently came home. She had been, you advocated your butt off and she was on some reflux meds and you were starting to see some improvement with feeding, but we didn't have a chance to really hear about a pretty significant transfer that happened in the NICU with Miss Isla. And so would it be possible to go back a little bit to your time at Ascentia and when things with Isla started to get a little more complex and a transfer needed to happen.
2: Yeah, so there's actually some stuff that happened um, really early on. Uh, Isla was about two weeks old. And on Thanksgiving, we got the confirmation that she tested positive for MRSA, or also known as MRSA, and, in her pick line. And it was a very dire situation. She got very sick very fast. And I remember that being the first horrible holiday of my life. And things just kind of snowballed from there. Uh, we had to make a decision on whether to keep the pick line in or take it out. And Isla is a very difficult uh IV access Mm. start. And that became quite a challenge because, you know, a 26-week corrected child, is it's, it's a desperate need to have IV access. And she was still needing blood transfusions and many, many meds and, and all of that. And so it just was not an option to not have access. So they gave us the option of simply treating her. Well, they were going to treat her with broad-spectrum antibiotics anyway through her line. Uh, but the risk is, is that it, this type of infection can cause a film along the inner catheter or tube in the pick line. And even though the antibiotics knock it out, it can regrow once you, as soon as you stop the mm. antibiotics. Mm. And so the doctor on call wanted, or the doctor on service wanted to take it out immediately. And I said, okay, um, could we try putting in a different line first? Because that seems like a terrible decision. And he made it very apparent that this was the route that he thought was best. And my husband asked for a second opinion. And the other doctor who rounded back and forth came in on his day off and reviewed all of her labs. And he said, um no, you leave it in. And I said, well, I've already decided that we're not taking it out. Um, and I asked them to try to start a new one and they couldn't get it. Their best pick line uh, specialist tried five different sites. Mm. And I was told that she could get a pick line in a cricket. That's how good she is. She can count on one hand, the number of children that she could not get a pick line in. And my daughter is one of them. Mm. And so I am eternally grateful for trusting myself, even though I felt like I knew nothing at the time and leaving it in because it saved her life. And she went on broad spectrum antibiotics. It didn't grow back and we got very, very lucky. Mm. And since then she, had many complications aside from just having very sick lungs from being born so early. She uh, developed a cyst or a, we called it a nomada seal. They didn't know if it was fluid filled or air filled, but it was this large pocket in, in her lung, mm. one of her lungs that was pretty significant. It was taking up desperately needed lung space and they left, they, they just watched it. they, they waited and watched. And because of the positive MRSA test, which they think is the reason she developed that NMATA seal, mm-hmm. I wasn't allowed to hold my girls together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, at that point, hadn't held either of my girls. And I wouldn't hold them together the entire time that they were at that hospital together mm-hmm. until two weeks before they left. Um, I went through hoops with the infection control team about I could only hold Finley before I could hold Isla, and if I and I had to shower in between, and I had to wear mm. this, but then there had to be a curtain between the two girls, and this and that. It was it was changing every time I came into the NICU. It was honestly one of the most stressful things that happened to me. Oh my gosh. And I even contacted a disability advocate with Freedom Resource Center and had one of their independent living advocates come out and come to Grand Rounds to talk with the doctors about my wishes because I felt incapable of talking to these people. I... It felt like my lungs were crushing and I couldn't breathe. I couldn't, I couldn't even utter words and my kid needed me to, mm-hmm. my kids needed me to. And I told her in a, in a clear non-pressure s- situation, everything that I wanted to say and what I hoped to get out of the situation. And she simply attended the meeting and she spoke for me only if I needed her to. And I'm grateful that she was there. I was eventually able to get the words out, but they brought everybody, you know, everybody from every department's at Grand Rounds and they brought in administration and infection control. It looked like this like stomping squad walking Mm -hmm. in. They come in late to the meeting, too. It's like an intimidation tactic or something. And... I tell them everything that I want them to know that that these are my girls. They're, they're coming home with me. Isla has at this point tested negative for MRSA on her skin and her central lines and everything six times. But because of their hospital protocol, if you test positive once that entire stay, you are treated as if you are positive, even if it comes back negative. So if she was discharged for one day and came back, then I could have held my kids together. It was so hard and so exhausting mm-hmm. fighting for that. And I knew at that time that I needed I needed some support. And once I was in that meeting, I couldn't have been more grateful because they came walking in and I was so intimidated. I felt like I couldn't speak. And all they said to me was, we'll take that under advisement and let you know. And they left.
1: mm mm-hmm.
2: And so I think I held them twice together before Isla was transferred on February 8th of 2019. She was uh, just over three months. She was three months old when she was transferred.
0: And so what was kind of the determining factor that she needed to be transferred?
1: Mm.
2: So they were closely monitoring that seal. And they were having more and more time or difficulty stabilizing her Mm. and she was needing more and more oxygen. And so they decided to take her down for a CT scan, which was a little exciting because we got to leave the NICU for the first time. (laughs) I have like pictures and videos of us tooling down the hallway and we're in the elevators. (laughs) I'm like, we left the NICU. (laughs) Um, And so we went down and she had a a CT scan done and in a week's time the nematocale had doubled in size wow. and was taking up more of her lung space and they said we can't we can't wait anymore if this thing ruptures if this thing ruptures then we don't have the capabilities here to potentially save her life and it would be a much more serious situation and we want her to be in the best hands possible. And this was our same favorite doctor that I've been talking about this whole time, and he got her transfer initiated right away. Mm.
1: And
2: they told me I couldn't, I couldn't fly with her. This was also the day that they diagnosed her with uh, pulmonary hypertension and started her on meds for that. And then she was life flighted to Minneapolis, a thirty-two thousand dollar flight, which is painful. So that first night with Isla at Children's Hospital was very, very rough. In fact, the neonatologist there slept at her bedside. She was on max support that they could possibly have her on. And she was on the jet ventilator. Oh. And she, the just the week prior, had been on high flow oxygen. Wow. So she was now intubated and on like for us, which was the the most significant ventilation that that our kids needed. And so I didn't know that night that the doctor didn't think she was going to live through the night. Um, I had come down from our Ronald McDonald room that was thankfully in the hospital there for critical cases. And I pumped in her room, and she was fairly stable while I was down there. Um, but I guess when my husband had visited other times that night, um, she was getting I – th- I, I think they had to beg her that night and uh, many other interventions. It was, it was much more of a scary experience, but they mm. did a great job at making me feel calm and comfortable and later talked to me about – what could have happened that night. And instead Mm -hmm. I just have, I have fond memories of being there for her. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I needed it at that time. Um, Then we found out that the reason she got worse so fast was because she had developed pneumonia. Oh
1: Mm. my gosh.
2: And they did an echo and they said, well, she doesn't have pulmonary hypertension and they took her off of the medication that was started at the first hospital and she just didn't seem to get better. And they had put her on nitric oxide, which you other uh, pulmonary hypertension mamas out there will know that it does the same thing or similar things as the medication to treat pulmonary hypertension. And so it was not until her Not until she was suffering from right-sided heart failure that they caught the pulmonary hypertension again and finally got it treated. And so she had since, until coming home, was still on that medication for a very long time. And slowly but surely, she got better. There was another significant time. I told you um, Finley came home in March of 2019 and a week after she came home exactly, we got a call from Children's Hospital four hours away that we needed to come right now. Mm -hmm. And within 30 minutes my whole life and my child and my in-laws were packed in a car speeding as quickly as we could to Minneapolis. And when we got there to her room Um, I think she had like 50 IV lines. I swear there was so many pumps there. The room was dark. Her eyes were covered. Her ears were covered with the earmuffs that she had to use when she was just first born. Um, and they like skirted us out of her room and brought us to a conference room way far down the hallway. And they asked me if they wanted me to hold Finley. And I said, my kid just came home from the hospital. I ain't given her to nobody. And they said, okay. And we sat down and the doctor started telling me the worst thing that I have ever heard in my entire life, which was, we're doing everything that we can. And we don't know if your daughter is going to live 10 more minutes. That if she doesn't pull through this on her own, there's nothing more that they can do for her. And me and my mom and my in-laws and my, my husband um, burst into tears as they started talking about DNR, paperwork and ECMO and pretty much any other options we had at my daughter surviving and my son who was not yet 2 was in the room when everybody burst into tears and he was so mm-hmm. confused and just paralyzed by what to do and i i almost collapsed and and the nurse took finley from my arms and and i just cried and i didn't even have i didn't even have the capacity to console my son right away. I, I picked him up and and I couldn't even say it was okay because none of this was okay. None of it was okay. And I slowly started saying no faster and louder and repeatedly until I told the doctor to stop talking and to get out of this room because I didn't want to hear another word and that I wouldn't be signing any paperwork. And I went into Isla's room and I sat by her bedside and I just held her hand. She was on rocoronium, which is a paralytic um, to keep her from fighting the ventilators. And she couldn't, she couldn't move. I didn't know what she could feel. She was on pain meds galore and back on TPN. And, and I just held her hand and I told her that mommy loves you and daddy loves you. And I'm here for you. And I told her I didn't know how. I had never felt this mother's intuition that people talk about. I had never felt it. Not with my son. Not with Finley. Not with anybody. But there was something in my soul that told me that Isla was going to be okay. I I wouldn't even entertain the idea otherwise. The doctors would say, well, maybe... And I said, if you're not coming in here to talk about how my daughter's going to survive this, then you can leave.
0: And I sat there
2: with her and a day went by and two days went by. And she woke up and she was sucking on her her tube. And she was looking around the room and I was there for her. And it meant everything. And five days after that, a week to the day from when they told me that my daughter was going to die, they told me she was strong enough to have not one but two surgeries to have her trach and her GJ tube placed. And she did great. She did great. And she survived that, and she survived many more things throughout her stay. She survived pneumonia, I think, three more times. She had trach infections I feel like she was on antibiotics for all but two weeks of that entire year. They found out that she was not producing enough um, antibodies for her immune system to properly fight off these things because I had literally exhausted every option that it could possibly be for why she was sick all the time. Um I had contacted infection control. I was having the nurses wipe down every single surface of her room, every single shift. I said, what, what is happening? Why is she getting sick? And eventually she started on immunotherapy. Um, uh, she did IVIG for a bit and then was transferred to, um, IGG treatment of Hyzentra, which is and a subcutaneous injection to the tops of both of her legs every single week, and we still do that today. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she got sick less, and when she wasn't also having to fight illness, she got stronger and she got better. And we still had many disappointments of planned discharges and then those things falling through. But she just she got better and she got stronger and. I would love to say that the hardest part of Isla's NICU stay was all of the medical obstacles and and hoops that we jumped through. But it wasn't. It was her being so far away. And I I said what I said in the last episode about doing what's best for you, that there is no right decision. There is no best decision. But we had to choose... The best decision for our family. And that meant not moving to the cities and not being there full time for Isla because Finley had just come home and she needed us. And Jackson was old enough to notice that we were gone and he needed us. And I'm not saying that Isla didn't need us because she 100% did, but she didn't know any different. And we made the toughest decision of my life to to not be there with her every single day
1: yeah,
2: and the hardest part was not being there, not being totally informed of her care.
0: So that is such a unique and, you know, spe- you know, I don't know special is the right word, but like unique part of your story is that you had to be four hours away. And so how did you navigate that schedule? And, you know, what what was that like for your family, adjusting to that? Did you have kind of like a routine, or was it just kind of like day by day? You know, how was that for you?
2: Yeah, so like I said, we always tried to keep uh, some semblance of normalcy, and so in the beginning, uh, when Finley was still in the hospital, we would see Finley during the weekdays, see Jackson in the evenings, and then every weekend we would pack up all of our kids and we would drive four hours and Mm. we would go visit Isla every single weekend. Meanwhile, my husband's working 50 to 60 hours doing concrete outside and then having to spend eight hours in a car every single weekend, staying overnight in a hotel, packing up our whole life and everything we could possibly need for our newly discharged NICU baby.
0: Right, right.
2: And it got to be too much very, very quickly. And so we started going every other weekend or we started going down for just the day. And so we would do all of that driving there and back in the same day. And we would find a babysitter for Jackson. And I couldn't quite leave Finley at that point. So she came with us and... it it did get less and less. And that was super hard. There's a lot, there's a huge level of guilt that comes with that because it felt like I was abandoning one of my children for the sake of the other two. But there's only so much a person can handle. And I turned to support groups. Like, how do I do this? What do I do? And you wouldn't believe and it wasn't from Dear Nikki Mama. I just have to stress that. Um, <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't believe the amount of negativity and comments that I got about how I should have just packed up my life and been there for my kid. That's hard. Um, and there was one person in in that sea of comments that actually said something constructive. And she was a great deal she she was a huge part of creating the routine and schedule that we did with Isla so we recorded us reading books and stories, some were audios and some were videos. So they could put on a CD player. Isla, Ila thrived with music. That was, that was like her thing. If she was upset, it didn't matter how horrible your singing voice was, but I told everyone just sing to her when in doubt. If her oxygen is low, just sing to her. Everything is fixed with singing. <laughs> and so we had them play our voices and, reading and singing songs and videos of her relatives just telling her about themselves and and about their wishes for her and and then we had a mobile above her head in her crib and she attached to that and thrived with that so much but over the pictures of these they had the like black and white contrast photos on there we taped pictures of her family. So it was me and my husband, Finley and Jackson on the three tiers, and it would spin above her head and play music all the time. And so she just constantly saw our faces revolving so that she would recognize us and know us. And those were the ways that I was able to bond with my child without actually being there. And so that is something I wanted to stress to all of the moms out there is that you don't have to physically be there to be there for your child.
1: Yeah. That's so beautiful. I mean, I think, like, and I I see this a lot in the communities too. It's really hard. It's very hard to eliminate judgment or talking with other moms. But I think one of the things that you do for other moms that I see, and I really, I think one of the special things about the amazing women who are attracted to Dear Nikki Mama is that uh. There is, there's no expectations, right? There is absolutely no right way to do this. There's not one right way to do it. So yeah. like you said, when you said, this is how I'm struggling, um, you, know, you, you know, reaching out and saying, what could I do? What can I do? Because I can't do this. Um, and so that woman who reached out and said, well, this is what you, you know, that is like all the validation you needed. Do you know what I mean? And it's such a good reminder that... Um, for us to, as we communicate, you know, for loved ones to communicate with our Nikki families, but also, you know, for, you know, at, for Nikki moms themselves to be like, I don't need this, this channel of communication. This is not serving me, you know, social media, this group isn't working for me. You know, there's so many out there or this, this account, this is that, you know, you giving yourself permission to kind of mute um, and protect your heart. That makes sense.
2: Yeah, but I will forever sing the praises of Dear Nikki Mama because it has been my saving grace. It has been everything I've needed it to be from the minute I discovered it. And I have never once had an experience like that where I wasn't fully supported by the other moms in this community. And it literally changed the way that I experienced this this journey and this life. And it helped shape the person that I've become. And I... I can never repay what I got from that. So I'm just, I'm so, so
0: grateful. Okay. Well, I'm fine. Wow. I'm <laughs> note,
1: but I, I believe it. To you got us weeping
0: so many times.
1: <laughs> like the thing is though, and Ashton, I say this all the time. It's, um, the kit, like the it's the women. It's like the individuals in the community that make it special, right? Like I'm not sure what the magic sauce was that drew all these women in that were the same, because like I I could list off so many of them. But you're right, we're not like Ashley and I and the people on the dear Nicky Mama team. We're not even doing a lot of the work in these in the comments because in our support group. Because everybody else is just already doing it, right? No, but
2: Martha and (laughs) Ashley, you guys created the environment that allowed for that to happen. And Mm -hmm. do not push off all of the credit on everyone else because it it, it did take an army and a village. It did. But you guys (laughs) created this space and it has turned into something so incredibly beautiful that has changed the lives of so many women.
1: You're very, you're very, very kind and very wise. Girl, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> mm, okay. Just... So how would even transition on that? I think, um, I, I don't know. I think you, you have so much wisdom to say here. And especially because of this unique thing with Isla, with right? Like you, and you, you did exactly what you had to do at the moment, right? Which is whatever you could, right? I mean, I think, I think that's the hardest thing too, is like, I I know I'm sure people said this to you. How did you do it? Right. How did you do it, Tiffany? Like you were like, this is the only way, right. There were no other choices.
2: Well, right. But, but it wasn't, there were other choices and I had to choose, I had to choose between the hardest of all the decisions. Like I could have, I could have separated from my husband, taken Finley with me, left my less than two-year-old son who was eternally bonded to his mother
0: yeah.
2: and just packed up and we could have lived separately so that I could be there for Isla and he could be there for Jackson and our marriage would have failed and we would have had a broken home to bring him, bring her home to. Um, yeah. Or he could have gone and he could have found a job there and left me here with both of the kids, in which case that was absolutely not okay with me because I, I would have felt empty and our marriage would have suffered. And there was enough strain on our marriage and we went through a lot in the days following. Um, but we, we did grow stronger and we grew, grew closer. And so there are always options and sometimes none of them are great options. Right. And that, that was, that was the situation we were faced with and we chose the worst option that that was best for everyone um or for as many people as as we could and and we went with it, and still today there is some level of guilt and i I don't know when or if that will go away um but as the days pass and as my kids age and as my bond with my daughter grows stronger and stronger, and that I can comfort her when she breaks down at the doctor's office from, from the PTSD of everything that she went through, that I am her saving grace, that I am that safe place for her. It lets me know that, that there wasn't a wrong decision and that I didn't screw her up for the rest of her life by making that choice.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely not. In fact, she, she benefits from the fact that you're her mother, right?
0: She yeah. wouldn't be
1: who she is. You know, she, the, the, the things that you whispered to her in the hospital room from the ways that you support her today. Right. Like the- I mean,
2: I did, I did like grow every cell in her body too. So
1: yeah, I, mean, that, I, that, I do, that, I do that, get credit for that. Let us, not, let us not forget. Right. Um, yeah. So Isla has
0: the trach. She has a G-tube. When did the conversation about discharge start to come about? And what were your thoughts knowing that you'd be, you know, a medically complex NICU mama the moment that you left the NICU?
2: You know, it was still just trucking along with that mentality of let's get through this next thing. It was one step at a time every single day as something new came. And I'm very detail oriented. I love tasks and lists. And when she got a trach, they said, here's a checklist. You need to know all of this. And I said, thank you. I will. And and we worked our way through it. And, And slowly I learned how to care for my daughter in this new way. And, you know, we had several moments where they said, well, this is tentative discharge and then that would fail. And I said, I refuse to celebrate my daughter's first birthday in the hospital. And then I did. And then she went on the home vent. She had to trial on it for four weeks. And so I said, four weeks to the day I'm taking her home because I will not celebrate another Christmas without my family whole. And four weeks came and four weeks went and I took every single person that I could think of down to children's and forced them to get uh, CPR first aid certified and trach certified and all the Isla things certified because (laughs) – over my dead body, was she spending one minute longer in that hospital than medically necessary? I was not going to be held up by not having enough nursing or caregiving staff. And so I had 10 other people besides my husband and I get certified to care for my daughter. Wow. Um, hallelujah for having a giant family that all lives here next to me.
0: <laughs> right.
2: Um, and... Four weeks to the day was December 23rd, 2019, two days before Christmas. And I told her, I said, she will not stay here a minute longer. I will be picking her up and walking out of this hospital. And I did just that on December 23rd. And I brought my daughter home in an ambulance. And our life turned into a whole new world of chaos. Yeah. Um, what that looked like was 50 syringes of medications a day. It looked like, um, hardly any nursing whatsoever. My husband and I switching shifts on who was going to do the overnight shift, which relative of ours was going to cover so that one of us could get some sleep, um, while caring for our other two kids and, and, um, you know. All of that that comes along with caring for just a child and and then, you know, all of the the trach stuff. And when Isla came home, she was much, much less stable than she is now. It was a lot scarier to do trach changes and trach cares um, because it was a more dire situation. She would, I mean, even the four weeks before she was discharged, she would turn blue in seconds after you took the trach out and you didn't have the luxury of time to get a new one back in. And even just disconnecting her tubing to run it through the rails of the crib was work for her. And she couldn't maintain those few seconds by herself. And so it was terrifying to potentially fall asleep when my daughter might need me. And we just kept doing the next thing. My husband and I quickly fell into a routine of getting all of Isla's things. And like I said, I thrive with, with a schedule and lists. And so it was always, okay, well, at 2 o'clock, we have this. At 4 o'clock, we have this. And and that's just what our life looked like. And slowly, Isla got better. And she needed less support and less oxygen, and I'm happy to say that today Isla rarely needs oxygen unless she's sick. She uh, only is on her ventilator at night, but not for ventilation for CPAP, positive pressure to keep her lungs open and prevent those trach infections. She has only had one trach infection in the, oh, it's a year and a half almost that she's been home. And she is hitting a majority of her developmental milestones. She's talking and walking and running and climbing. And our most recent struggle has been eating because what would a good NICU journey be without a feeding issue? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but slowly and surely we're working through that too. And, and Isla is... She is so strong and resilient and brave and just the light of my life. She is always happy despite everything that she's been through. She smiles through it all. She will throw up and she'll smile at you afterwards like, sorry. (laughs) Um, And she she just loves people and she loves cuddling and she loves being held and I didn't imagine any of those things would be true because she spent so much time alone in a hospital bed, but it, it really can happen. And and
0: it mm. did. Mm. That's so beautiful.
1: Could you talk a little bit too about, uh, what the, you know, the moment and the many, many moments since when you've looked and you're like, Oh, I've got three kids and <laughs> they all have very different needs. Right. And had very different, traumatic, joyful, difficult, wonderful experiences that brought you to today?
2: Uh, I think about it every day. I think I, I think about it so often. I, I will say to my husband, we have three kids, like mm-hmm. three of them. We have like our own soccer team here.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and it's a lot. It's a lot because they're all like the same age. I have a three-year-old and two two-year-olds right now
1: yeah how do you yeah. how
2: do you even say that? like how mm-hmm. is that real life? I mean, my son is gonna be four next month, which is quite exciting. But when I think about the fact that that means in in a few short months my my daughters are going to be three
1: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> How could all of this been three years ago? but I do. I think a lot about the different things that they need and and the different challenges that they have because. Um, Finley is smart as a whip. She is just a spitfire still and the sassiest little girl you've ever heard. (laughs) And Jackson has been having difficulty at daycare with uh, behaviors and, and challenges. And that is really hard for me because I think he's the most perfect, wonderful child on the face of the planet along with my girls. And and then there's Isla, who's been struggling with feeding and had to go into a, an intensive feeding therapy program. And I had to switch my entire job and, and life around to be there for her. And it's always going to come with new challenges, because I have three kids who have drastically different needs. And I always put their emotional state and their mental health first. And right now... I feel like I am to a point where I can give them what they need because I've given myself what I've needed. And so I, next month, get to be a stay-at-home mom of three <laughs> kids. I put my notice in at my job and I'm going to be able to give my kids the one-on-one attention that they need and the the different uh, styles of support that they need to thrive and i am so incredibly grateful and i feel so blessed to be able to do that for my kids yeah and if you asked me a year ago there's no no chance that i would have been able to take on take this on i could barely handle one of my kids let alone three and so if you're okay with it, I'd like to just tell you a little bit about what my mental health has been throughout this entire journey and,
1: and how I got to this point today. You touched on it a little bit in Finley's episode, but you taught, talk, we talked about the, the hollow feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the fight or flight that you for sure were experiencing in the NICU, right? And, and I wonder how, how it's transitioned since there, since then, you know, in these past almost three years.
2: Yeah. So you are in that flight or fight. You're just, um, you're just coasting through. You're just on autopilot. It's just life is happening around you and you're just dealing with the next thing. There's no, there's no semblance of control. There's no, there's no peace or calm. It's just what's next, what's next, what's next. And a year ago, well, let me back up. So I refused to take any medication to treat the uh, postpartum depression that I obviously had. They talked to me about it very early on, the nurses, um, a psychiatrist, um, my OBGYN, just everybody seen it and knew that I needed something more. And for me, I could not allow myself to take anything. I said, the only thing that I can do for my girls is provide them with this breast milk supply that I've been blessed with, and I'm not going to taint it by putting medications into my bloodstream. And that was that was my first um, misconception about what it would do to my daughters. And so for a long time, I suffered. I suffered in silence. I... I challenged myself even more than I had to. And Mm -hmm. so I mentioned that I pumped for an entire year after they were born. And on that last day, I went in for a regular checkup with my doctor, and he asked me how I was doing, and I burst into tears. And he prescribed me um, some Zoloft. And it sat on my counter for a month because I was adamant that I didn't need it, even though I was done pumping. That was my reason before. Now, now I just didn't need it. And we were working through a type of therapy with my therapist, um, EMDR, for trauma therapy. And she asked me to talk about, to develop my calm space and what that looked like. And My calm space has and always will be my in-law's house. From the first day that I ever went there, I felt an overwhelming sense of peace and calm and joy and happiness.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. And I talked to her about what it looked like and what it felt like to be there. And then she asked me the question, so now tell me about a time when you last felt calm. And I couldn't stop crying. It burst into tears and she couldn't quite figure out why. And later I, later I realized I was crying because I couldn't remember the last time that I felt calm. And that night I went home and I took the damn pills (laughs) and, (laughs) and it got a little bit better. It did. Um, but it just, it didn't change my world. Like I thought that it should, I had been going to therapy. I had been doing half the work I've been I I tried it, you know, why isn't it working for me? We increased the dose. We did all of these things. And what I have to say is that there is no one right way. There's no one right medication. There's no one right path to dealing with your mental health. And for me, I wasn't about to try a bunch of different medications. And so Mm -hmm. I had a genetic test done and the genetic test came back that that actually wasn't the best medication for my body. I got put on one of the ones that my body metabolizes, found out that my body doesn't metabolize uh, folate very well, and found out that some of my lower energy and issues that I was dealing with was because I didn't have that. And if you don't know, folate is especially important in preventing birth defects in children. So I'm grateful that I didn't go through that as well. But um, it also um, is used in developing your red, red blood cells. And so... Uh, that's kind of an important part of living, and I was I was sucked of energy. I didn't have any energy, and I thought, well, I have three kids. It's got to be that, um, but it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't, yeah. and I got on the right medication. I got on the right dosage, and I started taking time for me and doing things that made me feel good. And for me, that meant exercising my body, taking the time 20 minutes, 30 minutes a day where I wasn't just a mom. I was just a person too. And, and I took a trip and I went to Mexico and it was right before COVID happened. I almost didn't make it back into the country, (laughs) Um, but I felt alive there. People looked at me like I was a, a, an adult human being and mm-hmm. talked to me like I had value outside of caring for other people. And that was, that was what defined me. That was, that was who I am. And, for a lot of people, it's hard to define yourself by the roles that you play because when that role goes away, your sense of self right. goes away. You were a person first, and you always will be. And I took the time for myself. I took time away from my kids. I didn't even bring my husband. Mm-hmm. I I that went. That sounds great. Yeah. I mean, I went and I laid on the beach and I enjoyed the sun and I had the time of my life and I came back and I wasn't living on autopilot anymore. I wasn't just surviving. I was living. I had control of my life and my happiness and it was the thing that I needed most. Yeah, And that that developed a ridge in my my marriage because my husband was still on autopilot and he wasn't ready yet. He needed more time. And it it caused huge, huge issues in my marriage. And we talked about separation. And I said, We made it through the hard stuff. How can this be it? And we worked through that too. And. Yeah. It, it took work and it took effort and it took months and trial and error. And eventually we found the root, the groove and the rhythm that worked for us. And now I get to stay home with my kids because I took care of myself first and I am a whole person first. And I'm able to give some of that back to my kids yeah. now.
1: Yeah. Hmm. So beautiful. I think, I think what you say yeah. echoes so much of what, We hear when we talk to other women, we don't see it portrayed in television or film or anything, but this idea that you sometimes have to re like after trauma and certainly after the transition to motherhood, rebuilding yourself from the ground up is a lot of work. And you're right. Like a pill doesn't do it. It doesn't, it, you know, obviously it's an element of it, but it's not going to change overnight. And that's, that's a real hard reality to, to, to to deal with but the idea is what do they always say like people overestimate what they can do in a day and underestimate what they can do in a year right mm-hmm. so you you we get frustrated with ourselves because we're not better tomorrow but we can't even dream of like who we will be in a year looking back and saying oh my gosh i have overcome so much i'm standing i'm stronger i'm a better wife, partner, mother, employee, business partner, entrepreneur, um, boss of all sorts, right? Because that's what we are, women, essentially. I think that's so, so very wise.
2: I think the thing that I learned most from it all is that you can do hard things, even if it feels like the hardest thing you'll ever do. There could be something harder that comes along, but but we can do hard things and we, we do it by taking it one step at a time and overcoming one thing at a time. And and that's that's truly what got me here. It wasn't one thing that made it better for me. It wasn't one choice that made it better for me. It was a combination of figuring out what worked for me and it won't be the same for everybody. But, yeah. but I found what worked for me and and now I get to create the life that I wanted
0: to have with my kids.
1: Yeah, it feels very triumphant. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we
0: just went through like two hours of therapy. Okay, but for real, when you guys put out
2: the sweatshirts that said, be proud of who you've become, it hit my soul. Like, <sighs> it's, it's literally just the anthem of my life right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. good. And then I also think it's really cool. We've had a bunch of wonderful people on the podcast, but um, one of them was Anise niece. From the breakthrough, Mama mentioned this thing about like when we demonstrate um, resiliency for our kids, we're we're uh, interrupting the chain of generational trauma, right? And you're demonstrating for that. Your kids have already been through it, right? But because you are demonstrating resiliency, they will learn it and they will be stronger and that will continue and continue. Right. Isn't that- well, and,
2: well, and that's the, that's the thing that's really hit me. And, and I didn't even mention that I've been, you know, reading personal development books. I've been reading books for pleasure. I I've been doing a combination of things. And, and the one thing that's really always resonated with me is that I don't want to teach my kids that you give every last bit of yourself until there's nothing left. Mm. I don't want to show them that it's that it's not okay for you to say that's enough or I need a break or I need to take care of me. I don't want to show them that it's okay to not take care of yourself because you have to take care of yourself first. That's your priority. You put on your oxygen mask first on the plane and you take care of your life and your body first. And that, that resonated with me so hard that – it wasn't. I wasn't doing it for them. I was doing it for me, and they're going to benefit because of it. Hmm.
1: Okay.
0: Well, Miss Tiffany, dear sister and friend, we're so grateful that we got to meet you at the Galentine's event. Gosh, only a year ago. It feels way longer than that, but apparently, it was only a year ago. Um. But again, just thank you for your vulnerability and we know your story because we know you as a friend, but it was just such an honor to hear so many more details and so many more deep vulnerabilities of it today. And we just want to affirm how remarkable you are as a woman and a mom. And, um, the wisdom that you've shared here today, you can tell is because you've done the hard inner work of digging deep. And so we just want to affirm the courage it takes to do that and just how proud of you we are. So, um, to the Nikki mamas listening Uh, we just want to, first of all, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for always being here in this space with us. Um, and to just know that your journey is always valued and honored here. There's no one right way to a, do the NICU, but B to take care of yourself and you are worth the investment and the time it takes to heal. And so honor your heart in the process. You have permission to do that. So we will be back next week with another episode and we can't wait to connect with you then. But we just want to affirm that you can do this. So we love you guys, and we'll talk to you guys next week.
1: If you love this podcast and would like to hear more amazing stories, please consider becoming a member of the Dear NICU Mama Patreon page. In addition to special merchandise and early access to content, Patreon members support the mission, programs, and services of Dear NICU Mama. You can find the link on the description of this episode. As always, if you'd like to hear more from Dear NICU Mama, click subscribe. Welcome to the sisterhood.